Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy. Welcome to this new episode of New Books in Economics. I'm your host, Andrea Bernardi, from Oxford Brookes University. And today I'm joined from China, from Shanghai, by Donny Wang. Uh, Donny just published a book. It has just been released in um, in 2017-2018, and the book is titled Before the Market, The Political Economy of Olympianism. Uh, Donny, maybe, well, first of all, welcome. Maybe you can introduce yourself with your current affiliation, and then we will start with the book. Sure. Uh, so I'm Donny, like my uh, host just said. Uh, I'm currently a postdoc at Shanghai University. Before that, I got my PhD in classics from Stanford University. And in college, I study economics uh, at Berkeley. So this, this book uh, has your um, education background uh, anticipates. is not exactly uh, an easy book to collocate within a disciplinary boundary. It's not a book of uh, economics in the, in the traditional sense. It's not only a book of philosophy or history, uh, but I understand that you like to be defined an historian. So in which way is this book a book... Uh, of history or a book of economics or a book of philosophy? How would you define it? Yeah, it is uh, quite uh, interdisciplinary, I would say. And I think interdisciplinary is a nice way to say it. It's actually quite messy <laughs> when it comes to trying to classify it because there's definitely um, lots of history. I was trained as an ancient historian, so um, you're going to get all the uh, typical you know, historical um, sources. You're going to get historical um scholarship. Um, there's definitely a lot of uh, philosophy. You know, I talk about um, big concepts like democracy, um, identity. I talk about culture. And, and this book definitely also focuses on economics. So um, my, my, the way I describe it might sound uh, a bit overwhelming, but I assure you, um, I got into all these topics or fields because um, it's just they're just necessary for me to kind of make my argument and discuss the ideas that I wish to discuss. Okay, the title of the book is Before the Market. By the way, it has been published by Common Ground, which is a publisher based at the University of Illinois in the United States. Um, so the title Before the Market, but there are actually two institutions that are discussed widely in this book. One is the market and one is the state. So what used to be the world like before the market and before the state in ancient Greece? Um, it's definitely a vastly different world. <laughs> and that's why I'm uh, writing this book. And it's actually um, also a very poetic world in the sense that uh, it's literally poetic because we 
for the period, for the historical period I'm writing about, we get mostly just poetic sources. So I, there's not a lot of data. You know, I can't offer you charts, and um, and people didn't really use a lot of technical terminology when they're describing, um, you know, their way of life. Um, but it's also poetic in the sense it was, uh, you know, things were talked about in very idealistic, um, idealistic terms. So, you know, people would talk about gift exchange. People would talk about how they want to come together to build community. I mean, it's not just all perfect. There's definitely warfare, there's slavery, but there's this, um, you know, very poetic sensibility to that kind of world. And it's definitely a vastly different world from the one that we live in now. But this book is not uh, like uh, other um, studies about, in fact, the economics in strict sense. For example, now we are familiar with uh, attempts like those of Angus Madison to, to measure and to quantify the wealth and the dimension of the economies of the ancient civilization. This book is not about how big or large was that economy, but how, in a different way, it was organized as the society. So, um, in which sense... Uh, before the market in, in ancient Greece? What were the institutions that were running the exchanges, the economic and social exchanges? Yeah, so I really like the way that you said that this book is not about uh, uh, quantification, which is sort of, you know, the dominant method in economics and uh, economic history even. people. It's just a matter of, you know, how much we can measure given the amount of uh, existing um, historical sources we have. So I definitely, um, you know, make, made a conscious decision to kind of react against that because, like you said, it's not a book of um, filled with data and charts. Um, and there's, a, there's also a theoretical reason for that. And I kind of laid it out in my first chapter because I think, for me, um, the economy is sort of driven by, uh, quote-unquote, culture. What I mean by culture is a set of discourse that determines people's view of the world, people's sense of identity, people's idea of how they should interact with each other. So before the market is sort of, um, after setting up this theoretical framework, which, you know, people may or may not agree with, um, this book is about sort of uh, laying out the this body of uh, discourse to show that how the world was, you know, fundamentally different not just sort of in terms of, uh, not sort of only in the material sphere, but in just even definitely to the point of how people understood themselves and how they saw the world. At page 12 of your book, there is um, a timeline of ancient Greece. And so a few centuries with the most important philosophers and writers and and I would like to ask you, given that you are Chinese, even if you studied in the United States for both college and university, how is it to approach the classics uh, as a Chinese in Europe, more or less, even if not everybody studied Latin or ancient Greek or Latin and Roman um, literature? More or less, we take for granted that we come from that civilization and that there are some institutions and some words in our daily life that come from, from there. But how is it for a Chinese to approach that word? Um, I, I guess it's hard for me to speak for all Chinese people because there are many of us, as you know. <laughs> so 
first <laughs> I'll just maybe talk a little bit about myself. Um, I think it's um, it's definitely a very very stimulating experience because it really questions. I mean, for me, everything you know is exotic. Everything, I, it's not. It's maybe not true anymore because I have studied. Uh, <laughs> I have studied the classics for so long, so now they're no longer exotic. Sometimes they can get a little bit, uh, you know, trite and, and and boring too. You know, after years of research and writing. <laughs> but um, I guess what I can like, what I can say is, what I like about it is that it's always very. Um, you know, I don't. I cannot take anything for granted. It's just sort of like you know, whatever people encounter. Greek civilization, you often start with mythology, like the Greek gods. And we don't we don't have uh, these kind of gods in Chinese culture. So I have to think a lot about, you know, what does it mean to be to be living in a society where where you have these gods who are really flawed, um, but they you know often they all have have to negotiate with each other. You know, they're always debating, they're always having conversation. I mean, what what does that mean? What does that tell us about the culture? So. For me, I think it's um, overall it's been a very stimulating process. It kind of allows me to discover myself more. It's been a really good, a growing process because it questions my. It helps me to kind of understand my cultural background. It helps me to look at you know different other people, different types of ideas out there. Um, and also, I hope it will allow it allowed me to. Um, Find things that maybe people who are very familiar with the culture would not normally see. So I think it's overall a very productive process, even though it's kind of also very costly. I would say, <laughs> you know, I spend, uh, it's not easy to learn Latin and Greek um, to get through grad school to uh, do all this stuff, um, writing this book. So um, it's costly, but you know, quite rewarding. And I would encourage anyone. Um, uh, who's got interest in a different culture to um, embark on this kind of journey. Um, in chapter two, you describe, uh, after a few centuries, the arrival of market forces from the seventh to the fifth centuries, um, and the um, debt, the notion of debt, bondage, enslavement, mortgage, alienation, and even the professionalization of knowledge as signs of the arrival of market forces. Um, so can you tell us something about how life is transformed because of um, those changes and why you attribute those changes to the market? Um, let's say in, in the book you tend to uh, put together market and capitalism. Why? Not necessarily they are the same. For example, you can have a market economy where the state or cooperatives are operating and they are not properly uh, capitalist term in, in the strict sense. So, at least personally, I assume that market is a neutral institution and that more or less it worked well. Capitalism not always uh, has worked well, but uh, the problem is more with capitalism rather than with market economy. Uh, so, can you explain instead your view of market, why it is something bad and why it corrupts somehow the idyllic Greek civilization? Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm very aware that even the basic definitions for um, for me to make the kind of argument I'm making are kind of difficult and problematic. Like you said, you know, what what is the market? What is capitalism? I mean, I can, you know, we all can write 
tons of books on just trying to define those. Um, I would just point out for me, uh, maybe a big feature, or maybe a different distinctive feature is that for me, the market is not an institution. The market to me, or maybe the way I use the market is actually it's a it's a word that stands for a type of culture. So it's an entire body of culture that controls how people think about the world, about themselves, about society. Um, in that sense, I, I think the market and capitalism can be, sometimes can be um, interchangeable because it takes a certain way of thinking to for the market to function. Because market, you know, requires people to participate and people have to know how to behave. Uh, they they need to know how to you know calculate. They need to know how to interact. So in that sense, um, when I say the market and when I say capitalism, I I'm talking about a um, well structured culture that actually produces agents, right? Which is I don't really like that word because that's very um, uh, mainstream economics. I think people are you know often more than agents, but they subjects. I sometimes use that or identity, I use that in my book. Uh, it's a culture that produces certain identities, and only when you when that happens, you can have the market um, or, or capitalism. And, and you asked me why I how I attribute all the bad things to the market, or was that? Well, yes, what happens to, to in Greece when market arrives? Um, what happens is I want to stress that there's clearly a, uh, it causes a um, erosion of this older culture, which is the focus of my book, which I, you know, I said, I call it Olympianism. It's a, it's a culture that's vastly different from capitalism. So, I mean, I don't think one needs to agree with my stance on the market. I'm, I don't see it favorably. I'm going to, you know, say it uh from the beginning and say it clearly, but um, even if even if someone doesn't agree with this, um, I think my book does show that when this culture of capitalism and the market arrives, it basically replaced or or um, corrupted this other culture that did not use the market in the sense that it did not it had a it was a very different culture. It you know produces people who a different mentality and different worldviews. What about the state? What was the world like without before the state? <laughs> yeah, I can tell that you're interested in the state. Um, it is true. I, I uh, the big argument I do say it in my book somewhere is that you know the world I talk about, the alternative system, the alternative culture I discuss, is something that does not that bypasses the state and the market. But this book um, does primarily focus on um, on just sort of the economic side or the market side. It does not focus very much on the state, even though I think the two um, really cannot be separated. Um, as you know, certainly I think many modern commentators would also agree. It's just that I um, didn't, I do not focus so much on the state in this book, uh, even though that's sort of my, my next book project. I want to talk about an alternative um form of society that, that does not use the state. And I think, like this book, I mean, the reason why I, actually, one reason that I wanted to write this book is that, you know, I get into these arguments with people, right? I kind of say, you know, the market is not so cool. It does this and that. And then people said, well, maybe. Do you have an alternative? <laughs> um, so 
so that was sort of like one big reason why I want to write that. And I'm definitely going to, if I, you know, have the time and the resources, I definitely want to write a second book because I get into that too a lot. People, there are people who can recognize uh, the shortcomings of the state, but they will always say, well, what, what alternative do we actually have? Can we actually do anything better? Um, I definitely think so. But unfortunately, I, I um, you know, we're not able to do this in, in this book. But it's definitely going to be my next project. I don't know if during your years in Stanford, uh, Professor Fukuyama was still there. But so uh, maybe you had the possibility to discuss with him whether uh, capitalism and, and, and democracy as we conceive it today was really the end of the history or not. And you are very ambitious in trying to find something uh, um, new, a new model. Yeah, he was definitely there. Um, I... He never taught me. I was not. I was never in um, any of his classes. Um, I did uh, went to one of his talks, and I did actually, you know, ask a question that was sort of, um, you know, kind of trying to uh, kind of question some of the things he was saying. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, yeah, I think. Uh, I, you know, I did get my PhD at Stanford. Do I agree with everyone at Stanford? Uh, the answer is definitely no. I'm, I'm just going to say that much. <laughs> good, good. Um, now, um, given that you come from China, and China is uh, generally told to be experimenting a new form of capitalism, actually even in the official definitions of the Communist Party, uh, they are trying to forge a new model. So I would like to ask you if, from your point of view, China do represents a new model, an innovation in uh, running a market economy or not? Um, <laughs> well, it's a it's a very um, charged question. Um, I would just maybe be a little uh, encrypted and say that I, you know, given that I'm. You know, I haven't really focused on China and, you know, I think China itself just takes so much uh, research and knowledge and analysis. Um, maybe I would just answer this question by saying that I um, am now based in China. I do my work in China. Um, I, I cannot come. I don't think I'm necessarily prepared to comment directly on the model of China, but I would say um, I do enjoy uh, being doing academic work in China because I think it's a different sort of intellectual um, environment. For example, if I, you know, if you say you're a Marxist or a socialist in the U.S., you know, you get pretty strong, you get certain reactions in the U.S., not necessarily in academia, mm -hmm. but in general. But in China, you know, we have, in every school, you have this, like, Marxist uh, department or, or uh you know, have this Marxist program. So um, at least on a very superficial level, if you say that, you know, I'm not a fan of capitalism, um, you wouldn't automatically, you know, get certain looks or, or get labeled in a certain way. So I think I, I do appreciate the space. Um, but in terms of like how much I can maneuver uh, within that space, what, what exactly I will be able to um, produce, um, that's, you know, that's a question, that's an entirely different question. Um, I would just say what's good about this book is that it's, um, 
or at least uh, when it comes to my argument, I do think that the world is becoming quite homogenous in terms of, uh, you know, even though China is, is, is very different and it claims to be different, but the, the dominant paradigms we have, I don't, I don't find them to be very diverse, to be honest. That's my, my personal opinion when it comes to economic development. They're mostly uh, Western um, paradigms. They're, they follow like mainstream economics. Um, so I want to be part of an effort to kind of broaden that discussion. I want to have more, um, a wider range of paradigms in that repertoire. So I want to uh, contribute to that. And I think China may not be a bad place at all for, for um, maybe accomplishing it. Thank you. Mm, let's go back to the classics. Uh, you mentioned Marx. And by the way, you don't need to go uh, to China to feel at home being a Marxist. In Europe, is, it is really acceptable to be a Marxist, uh, Marxist and to be a socialist, in particular uh, in 2018. <laughs> um, but I would like to ask you, because you yeah, briefly mentioned Marx, but also... You can easily, sorry, you discussed uh, very quickly about Marx uh, and also other classics such as Weber and Polanyi. Um, we know that, for example, Weber had an interest in the classics, but predominantly in the Roman economy and the transition towards the end of uh, the empire of the economic system. Uh, but uh, I would like to ask you, uh, what is your relationship with Marx now that we are on the topic? And what is new in the understanding of the past compared, for example, of the uh, work done by Max Weber? Yeah, well, it's a, a great question, especially given the uh, recent uh, 200th anniversary of uh, <laughs> Marx's birthday. Um, I um, have, you know, huge, huge respect, respect for Marx um, in his work. Uh, but I do try to, let's say, kind of put him in the background a little bit with this book because I, um, you know, I do think that he, you know, Marx is like everyone else. We're all mortals, which is a very, very Greek concept. Be mortal means we die and uh, be mortal means that we have limitations. And I think as great as he was, um, you know, he was around 200 years ago. I don't think he, you know, necessarily has the best ideas for, I mean, even if he did, that we are the living ones, you know, we're the ones who need to deal with the unique issues we face and we need to um, take on. So I um, definitely, uh, you know, think that my book presents a new model that's quite different from uh you know, this, the solution envisioned by Marx. I mean, I don't want to sound it in, it might sound very arrogant to a lot of people, but, um, you know, I'm certainly not someone who does not care for history or um, do not look around for ideas. I, um, you know, I, I, I would love to hear what other people have to say, and I think this has to be a collective enterprise. But I think at this point, um, you know, I definitely want my book to offer new ideas, and I would encourage people to, explore new ideas because I think you know we we face a lot of things that uh, that were not people that people 200 years ago were not able to anticipate so that's sort of my my um, my attitude 
Yes, if I go to the very beginning of the book, you write that, uh, of course, the history is written by the victors and that this has consequences uh -huh. on how we understand the past, and not only the biographies of the great men, but also uh, the main milestones of the past. So in which way your book can tell a different story about the classics? Um, well, I like it basically is uh, what you said, because I reject um, the notion that what has survived is necessarily um, more optimal optimal or uh, more desirable or more just. So um, even if people don't necessarily agree with my uh, sort of my own views, because yeah, I don't, I don't have a, a positive view of the market. <laughs> That's very clear from the beginning. Uh, I think what this history offers is that is a picture of contest or a picture of um, let's say, fragmentation, because, you know, I wanted to show that in this really fascinating moment in ancient Greek history, they, they were, there existed um, almost like three different outlooks, and they were, you know, competing all at the same time. So if you look harder into history, there are always alternatives, there are always different voices, thinking differently, wanting different things. And i I hope that I'm the type of histor historian that will, you know, uncover the tension in um, behind historical development. So I don't just present to you of what happened, but I want to tell you that, wow, at this moment, uh, there were all these different ways of thinking. People wanted to go in different ways. Um, eventually, you know, usually something prevails, but we should not forget the other possibilities. You know, they... they um, there's so much contingency. There were different paths we could take. We, maybe it didn't happen before, but we could still do it. We always have a choice, and we have to be uh, so keenly aware of the enormous power we have to, to choose differently and to be different. So this brings me to one of your research questions, which is whether uh, there is a process of convergence between uh, the classics uh, the classical period and um, the Industrial Revolution, for example, or whether that represented a major divergence, as you argue. So did Greek antiquity, as many argue, display all signs of a nascent market system lacking only the necessary technology and scale to enable something akin the modern capitalism or not? What is your answer? Um, what I really want to... Um... What I, what I really want to um, explain is that it's not so much... I think, first of all, the, the, um, the answers still remain to be seen because we are... I don't think... I mean, obviously, uh, history is going to go on. I don't believe in the end of history at all. So <laughs> whether capitalism is going to you know, survive and for how long, that's, uh, that remains to be seen. Um, but what I'm really... Um, what I really care to demonstrate is that, you know, it's not so much about what the ultimate outcome is, because we're still, we're always, history is always moving. So, you know, who knows, like, I don't want to have the final say. But what I want to demonstrate is that we are um, in this critical moment, because in, in Greek antiquity, you have this critical moment where things were turning, they, they had these competing uh, models, and then eventually, you know, 
um, the one that I favor a lot, Olympianism, um, did not win out. And I feel like right now, through the Industrial Revolution um, and you know recent modern developments, we're also at this um, juncture where we're faced with possibilities. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm much more interested in kind of illustrating the um, the uncertainties in history and the power we have in um, kind of you know taking things one way or the other. Your book, you also try to supply not an alternative, but at least to contribute to the debate on alternatives. Uh, in particular, you explicitly mentioned the uh, the protest movements, and, and I think you would like to contribute to that discourse. And but my question, my main question is probably: Do you think uh, what you describe as the classics uh, economy is compatible with? Uh, uh, what we are under today in terms of complexity, scale, and modernity. So, what we could bring to today's economy from that model that could could survive in this context? So, is the question basically like, how do we do? You think Olympianism is possible given the level of development or certain, you know, uh, sort of levels of technological um, achievements we have? Is that the question or? Yeah, yeah, this is my question. So the complexity of the society, but also the complexity of what we produce in our economic systems, the complexity of the economic exchanges, the level of interdependence between nations and market. Uh, so both the scale yeah, and the complexity. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. Very, very good question. It's obviously, you know, one of the most important questions because if it's, uh, if it's, only very poetic and very ideal uh, in imagination or in the past, and it doesn't really work for our the current uh, moment that we live in, then it's all just a, a useless exercise. <laughs> so, uh, no, my answer is definitely yes. Uh, um, I would say if you um, take a very simplistic view, if you look at the the sort of the the ideas and the goals of Olympianism, and you look at the complexity of scale, you would say, oh, well, yeah, it's, it would seem very uh, difficult, if not impossible. But I would say, I would turn it around. I would say the current complexity and scale that we have, um, that our, let's say, our societies display, are actually a product of the um, market capitalist system. They've been shaped, they're not given. You know, it's not sort of like, well, first we're this complex, and then um, we're going to figure out what uh, economy works best with this level of complexity. Uh, I would I would not agree with that. I would say, okay, we have a certain economic system, profit-driven, uh, market-based, capitalistic, the one I dislike, as you know, um, and it produced a certain type of complexity and scale that actually um, make the system that give it that gave birth to it inevitable or that would make the system that gave birth it most compa- would make it seem most compatible. So I would say, um, you know, once we have, if we become, and we have to become very committed to the goal of creating or reinstalling Olympianism in the sense of being committed to its principles, its democratic principles, its, um, you know, its basic cultural discourses, then we will 
um, have the right amount of, I mean, things will change and we will have the right amount of complexity and scale that are good for Olympianism. So I'm sort of maybe, you know, maybe optimistic. I would think that, you know, the ideas will go in first. We have a sort of commitment. We have those ideas, but those principles, and I think um, the rest will follow. Well, this is very interesting, very ambitious. Um, maybe uh, we could end our conversation. No, I, I said that this is very interesting and very ambitious. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, maybe I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> yes, yeah, it is a compliment. Yeah, uh, maybe I could ask you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> to, to complete our conversation uh, something more about your future projects. What are you working on now? Yeah, sure. Um, I'd be very happy to talk about them. Um, like I said, I want to write um, another book on the alternative to the state because I, you know, also have a negative view. Um, on the state and I have learned through debates and I, you know, I get in these long debates with people and I kind of, I get so emotional. <laughs> um, I can almost never stop arguing. And then, you know, people always say, well, is there any alternative? So I think this book, um, I don't know if it's going to convince any people, but I did my best. I, I try to lay out stuff. I did research. So this is definitely, I have something to give to the people who said, is there any alternative? And I want to do the same for political organization. If it's not the state, if it's not the nation, how are we going to get organized in a way that's the most honors the democratic principles? The um, Well, I do identify two key concepts of Olympianism, which are ecumenism and conviviality. How do we design, not design, but how do we organize ourselves politically um, into units, forms, polities that best honor these two principles. Um, so that's that's sort of like the book I have in mind. Um, and I actually may turn a little bit more to um, medieval history for that. So I was always struck by, um, you know, in the Middle Ages that you didn't, I mean, there were a lot of problems. I don't want to um, sort of glorify the Middle Ages, not at all. I mean, there's a reason why it's called the Dark Ages. Um, but it just always struck me how people in the Middle Ages weren't tied, I mean, besides the, the peasants, but there were a lot of people who were not tied to, um, you know, necessarily a territory. You know, you could be, you have different loyalties, allegiances, you could move around, you could become, you know, uh, rulers of another country could become a member of a different entity. They have like multiple layers and different associations and things were a lot more fluid um, at that time. So I wanted, I wanted to look into that period and maybe also the early modern period for, for some ideas. Um, so that's sort of my, my next sort of academic book. And in the meantime, I want to um, write more essays. I want to maybe even, you know, write, write a novel I just feel like, uh, you know, academia was not, was not definitely not the place that I would consider to be most creative. So now that I'm done with this book, <laughs> I want to give myself some space to, uh, you know, also do some creative writing. Good luck for your future projects. But in the meantime, congratulations for this book, which is already an amazing achievement. An American scholar with Chinese origin reading classics, reading even in, in ancient Greek, studying the ancient Greece capitalism or the ancient Greek economy, reflecting also on the meaning of that for our contemporary 
capitalism. It's an amazing uh, achievement because this was done through using history, economics, and philosophy. A very, very interesting book that was published in 2018 by Common Ground. And uh, the author that was with us today is Tony Wang. Before the market, the political economy of Olympianism. Congratulations and thank you for being with us today, Donnie. Yeah, thank you so much. It was my pleasure.